Now we have a lot of catching up to do since we found out they're ahead of us, hey? <laughs> a lot of pressure. Well, we better pray then first. <laughs> no, it is, it is wonderful to pray. You know, I was meeting with someone uh, this week, going through a, you know, an unexpected challenge in life. You know, and the highlight was when the person shared just how they'd cried out to God and they'd sensed God speaking to them and reassuring them, I'm with you. We've got this. I've got this. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what an amazing privilege it is to be able to speak to the creator of heaven and earth. Not to be shuffled off to a different department and, hold, and told to be put on a waiting list till a spot comes up. But to be welcomed into your presence because of the blood of Jesus that we have sung about, because of his sacrifice for us. He who came to make a way that we might not know you from a distance, but we might know you as one who holds us near and dear to your heart. Lord, uh, also reminded in this month of November, uh, the persecuted church, so many believers in so many countries around the world who are not free to openly express their faith, but must, when they worship you, do so in, in quiet voices, almost whispering under their breath at times. And yet, Lord, whose hearts are full and overflowing, Lord, with praise to you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would let them know that there are others who are supporting them in prayer. And Lord, we pray that there would be a great openness, a turning. Lord, especially among so many Muslim background believers, Lord, who, uh, who long to know a God who really cares about them, the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, um, we also uh, we want to pray also for those who are sharing the good news, not only here in our own country and in our own city, but Lord, around the world. And I think also of, of Lois and Shekinah and, uh, and Jeevan, who shared with us last week. And uh, Lord, we pray for their safety as they some of them are going and already are preparing to go to India, Lord, to share the good news with others, to equip others, to go into villages, Lord, to tell them stories about you and about who you are. Lord, we pray your hand of blessing and protection upon them. Lord, we pray that your spirit might move mightily, that it might break down walls of hostility and defenses, and that, Lord, there might be a great turning and an outpouring to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, this week, uh, my wife and I will be sharing some of our Mennonite history at the Cultural Tea on, uh, on Wednesday. And if you would uh, like to be a part of that, you are more than welcome. Just uh, let Gloria know so she know, has, knows how much uh, room to put out. And my wife, Elaine, will be baking a, a Mennonite dish known as plots. Uh, it's kind of like a fruit cake or coffee cake, but uh, it is, it's worth coming for. 
Well, one of the stories that is relevant to the story that we will be looking at today, relevant in Mennonite history, took place in the 1920s. Many Mennonites, my grandparents included, were living in the area of Ukraine, exactly the area where Russia and Ukraine's conflict is going on right now. And at that time, it was taken over by the communist revolution. And the revolution and famine that followed proved to be absolutely disastrous, with a flood of refugees looking to escape the oppression and destruction And so my grandparents, like many others, decided to pack up what they could and leave for Canada. The obstacles were huge, especially trying to move with young children in wintertime. But the biggest obstacle of all would be getting out. For even when they boarded the train, they had heard that it would be stopped at the border. uh, Like the Red Gate on the border of Latvia and Russia. Their officials would search through their belongings looking for anything of value that they could take and for people that the leaders wanted to send back to work in the forced work camps in Siberia. And so they anxiously hoped and prayed to be let through the Red Gate to freedom. And when they finally did, my grandmother told me they sang songs of praise to God. Indeed, the one that we sang this morning, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They felt like God had given them an exodus, just like he had done for the Israelites long ago in the story that we're going to be looking at. I invite you to to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We'll be reading there in a little while. There we see the beginnings of what will be the last and final plague that will free them once and for all from their slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. The previous nine plagues followed mostly, uh, or focused mostly on Moses' announcement to Pharaoh, uh, uh, often a warning, and then followed by the implementation of that plague and a report of its effects, and also a report of Pharaoh's response, which we have come to learn was uh, pretty consistent. Last week, we saw that basic pattern with slight variations and developments along the way, leading to Pharaoh finally urge, Pharaoh's officials urging him in chapter 10, verse 7, to let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize, like we do, basically, that Egypt is ruined? It sounds eerily like the kind of thing Hitler's officials said to him, with their country on the verge of utter ruin. Pharaoh did not yet realize that he was in no position to negotiate and how desperately he needed to capitulate, to give in and to give up his false claim on the Lord's people as his servants. You know, they say that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Well, that pretty much sums up Pharaoh, whose heart had become so hard and heavy as to be unmoved by the death and destruction of his people and empire all around him. It is only when the last and final plague, and literally as you looked at, blow or strike, strikes his eldest son, that Pharaoh will relent, for he has lost all ability to be reasonable and to be reasoned with. Let's uh, read Exodus chapter 11. 
Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was now highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. We'll stop there for now. Chapter 11 is essentially a preview and a prediction of the 10th and final plague. It will be the final one, not because Pharaoh said so when he banished Moses and Aaron from his presence at the end of chapter 10. No, it is the final plague because the Lord says so. In fact, it is the goal to which the story has been leading as God had told them when the plagues began. Before it all started, back in chapter 4, verses 21 and 20 to 23, the Lord had said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. It's, we're reminded of those words that God had said before. Israelites have been slaves for hundreds of years, but notice they will leave with gifts, and their captors will be only too glad to give them to them, if only they will leave. Their stock and their status and that of their leader Moses, God is saying, will soar, while that of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians is going to plummet. No one saw this coming except the Lord who predicted and planned it out in advance to show them that he is the Lord of history. Through the nine plagues, he has already shown them that he is the Lord of creation. All of creation, water, land, sky, animals, not the gods of Egypt that they thought were the ones over it. And the, in the final plague that he will also show that he is the Lord of life and death. Rather than hindering God's overall mission, Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, in a way that only God can do, will actually and ultimately serve to advance God's mission and God's reputation in the world at large. 
Because the greater the opposition, the more they discovered about God's power and ability that he was indeed Lord of all. Well, let's turn to chapter 12. Uh, We will walk through it. Uh, I'll be reading some of the verses along the way, but not nearly all of them. And so I encourage you to have an open Bible for that. Now, the final plague is the only plague, if we were to compare and contrast, it's the only plague that offers no hope of a limit or a reversal. Often the other ones, it would be like, okay, when do you want it to stop? A tomorrow, you know, the frog plague, or example. And this will mark the end of this long-fought confrontation between Pharaoh and God. And Pharaoh and Moses will actually meet once more, but only for Pharaoh to finally give in to the Lord's demand to let his people go. And yet this, this final plague will require far greater preparation and participation by God's people than anything that has preceded it. The other ones, there was a distinction, but they basically had to just stand and watch God do it. Here, the Lord will make a distinction once again between Egypt and Israel. But this one will require them to exercise their faith, to trust and obey his instructions. The lengthy but essential details that they need to follow are first given by the Lord to Moses in, uh, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 20. And they in turn pass it on to the elders in verses 21 to 28. So that they can make sure that everyone knows and follows them in time for the plague that is set to arrive, God says, at midnight. So there's a deadline here. Now most of us know what it's like to have a looming deadline, right? A list of things that we need to do to prepare for when it arrives. Maybe it's a test or a class presentation. Maybe it's an important game. Or maybe it's a special date. Sometimes it feels like our reputation or entire future is at stake. But in the case of the Israelites, following God's rules really would, was going to be a matter of life and death. Actually, following God's rules always is. Moses will later say in Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 30, choose this day. I've set before you life and death. Following God's way leads to life. Opposing and ignoring God's way will lead to death. Well, that is definitely demonstrated here. The Passover regulations prescribed not only what they were to do, but when. Notice in uh, chapter 12, verse 2. This month is, for, is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each is to take a lamb for his family, and it goes on. But it's, this is going to become your new year. Your calendar is going to shift. I mean, some of us, I know, think it's quite radical, you know, uh, putting our clock forward in spring and back in fall, and we have an entire debate going on. I don't know, it's pretty radical. Maybe we should just eliminate that. They reset their whole calendar. That's radical. As Peter Enns notes, from now on, every glance at the calendar will remind them of this fact. At the Exodus, God's people are being recreated. They are starting over with a fresh slate. In the same way, when Christ came to deliver his people from sin, his followers would recognize the need to reset the whole calendar, marking his coming 
as the beginning for the, for the whole world. A new beginning for the whole world. They were wise to do so. Well, great attention in Exodus 12 is also given to what they were to do to be ready for that final plague. Now, God would provide a way for them to be saved, but it required their participation, their faith, their obedience. Notice it begins with the choosing of a lamb for their family unit. And they were to choose that on the 10th day. And then in those days, like choosing it, you wouldn't just put it in a separate pen. Most of the time there, they had a, a part of the animals were connected to their home. And so basically, you would take that lamb or goat, and that would be almost like the family pet for four days. You would, that would become special. And it was to be a special one. No blemishes, no defects. This was to be the best because they were giving it to the Lord. And they were to take care of them until the 14th day. And then at twilight of that day, they must slaughter them and save the blood. Uh, verse 22, we'll talk about putting it in a basin and then taking that home and then when they get home, they're to take some of that blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they as family or family units are going to be then eating those lambs. And in verse 22, we say, none of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning. Don't you dare, because you're going to die. And that same night, in verse 8, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs, probably pointing to the bitterness of the slavery that they have had to endure. And then also bread made without yeast. Well, it'll say why in a little while. And the whole lamb is to be eaten and any leftovers incinerated. That is given back to God. And they were to eat it in haste. That is... They, uh, it says, stand up, ready to leave at a moment's notice. This isn't any sitting down for a meal. Stand up, eat, because you, when it happens, you're going to be ready to go in a moment. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. That's ready. And on that same night, we'll say about midnight, in chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord would pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. That is their wealth. Bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Who claim to have power and authority over all of this. And the blood in verses 13 and 14 will be a sign for you. And when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, scholars have debated the meaning of the verb Passover because it has various possible meanings in Hebrew. It is used, uh, it is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for being lame on a number of occasions, which sounds kind of lame or limping, but uh, the Arcadian neighbors of the Israelites who had to spoke a similar language used that word for appeasing, that is, appeasing God's wrath, or as we sang this morning, you know, turning aside the wrath of God. And that's possible, yet it can also mean defending or protecting, which appears to be the intended meaning here, given what we read in verse 23. He will pass over, using that verb, that doorway, and then in parallel, he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses 
and strike you down. That is, he will not merely pass over or omit that house, but he will actively protect those who have taken refuge under the blood of the Lamb. And the Passover is not just to be a one-time ritual. God's plan for it is to become the defining ritual in his identity, in the identity of his people. Indeed, in verse 14, makes that clear. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. In other words, you are to be a Passover people. This is to mark who you are. From now on, they are to remember this night. Say, impress it. They are to impress it on their collective consciousness. And they are to pass it on to their children and grandchildren. Talks about that in verses 26 and 27. It is to be a reminder, not just of what God has done, but what God will continue to do. To keep watch over, to protect, to guard his people. And if we skip ahead to Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 30, we read that at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. That, uh, the verb for loud wailing, tzak in Hebrew. It's, the other time it's been used in Exodus was the outcry that the Israelites cried out from their slavery back in chapter 3 and the Lord heard that. In his book, Exodus for You, uh, Tim Chester suggests that in every home throughout Egypt and Goshen, the death count was the same on the night of the Passover. There was a corpse in the house of every Egyptian and the Israelites. And I thought, uh, really? And he said, but there's a difference. The difference was that in the Egyptian homes, one of their children was dead. In the Israelite home, one of the lambs, one of their lambs had died instead. (laughs) Instead is really a key word, isn't it? Because if the blood was simply a marker like red paint, then red paint or some other marker would have done the job. But the blood was a sign that a sacrifice had been made, that a substitute had been offered in their place instead. Now, there are many more details that we could look at in Exodus 12, but I would rather spend the rest of the time this morning looking at how Jesus fulfilled and transformed the Passover forever by what he said when he celebrated it the last time with his disciples. Each of the Gospels record this. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 is a good one to look at. And, uh, and when he was with them, they, were, had, they had prepared for the Passover meal and uh, Jesus, as Jesus had directed. In 20, verses 26 and following, when they were eating, Jesus took the bread, the unleavened bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, uh, this is... 
take and eat, this is my body. And they must have been wondering, this was a ritual they had done, uh, you know, all the time since they were little kids, and this was a straying from the script. And even more so, when he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, he was saying that the next day he would offer himself as the Passover lamb for all those who by faith were seeking refuge under the saving power of his blood. You see, because the prophets had predicted, had made explicit that the blood of animals that the Israelites had sacrificed and were sacrificing was really a sign pointing to the need for a greater, even more costly sacrifice. I mean, after all, who really thinks that a lamb, an animal, is a fair exchange for a human life? Right? As Tim Chester points out, the lamb is just a pointer. It's an embodied promise of a true substitute. The Passover is a sign of a, of a greater act of redemption. And the prophets foretold of someone who would come to deliver God's people, not just from their physical oppression as they had done in Egypt, but from their spiritual bondage, from their slavery to sin. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus in the, in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he didn't say, look, when he saw Jesus, look, the new Moses. Though Jesus was the new Moses, but he was more than that. John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few decades later, the Apostle Peter would echo that point when he told his fellow believers that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Giving a lamb without blemish or defect was a requirement of the Passover because God wanted them to offer the very best that they had. And God was now offering the very best that he had. Their salvation cost them, cost the Israelites, but little did they know how much it would ultimately cost God. Peter N. says, The tenth plague was not a divine temper tantrum where God flexes his muscles before the Egyptians and really lets them have it. It is the necessary implementation of a redemptive pattern one that requires death as a means to fuller life. The consecration of the firstborn, which is what take, will take place in chapter 3, would be a reminder of the once for all substitutionary death of the beloved firstborn who is to come, that of God's. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, his life was totally transformed when he discovered what he would later tell his fellow believers in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And then he talks about keeping the festival. The festival of unleavened bread was the weekly celebration that was to follow. We kind of skipped over that, but it was attached to that. And he picks up on that and he says the fulfillment of that is that we as Christians, you know, are are not just to follow the literal rituals of the Old Testament, removing, they removed all the leaven 
which was symbolic of sin, but removed all the leaven from their house and ate unleavened bread for a week. Now, doing that can have educational value, especially if we've never experienced that. But more important, Paul was saying, is our understanding and embracing the greater reality it points to. That is the removing, he will say, of the leaven of malice and wickedness and replacing it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for us as our substitute to save us from death. Because as Paul will say in Romans, the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We all deserve to die because of our sin and rebellion against God. I mentioned the other week, there's a little or big Pharaoh in each of us that wants everything else to revolve around me, myself, and I. But Jesus took upon himself the consequences of our sin for us. By faith, his blood, as it were, is, is put over our lives so that God will pass over us on judgment day. Uh, We sang this morning in Christ alone. And we sang on the Christ the solid rock I stand. And one of the verses, when he with trumpet sound shall come. Oh, may I then in him be found. You know, spotless, clean, free. Indeed, the moment actually we by faith accept his sacrifice for us, we are truly free. Free from slavery to sin and the penalty of death that our sin deserves. Uh, Romans, just a few verses from Romans chapter, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Paul has just explained the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And now, when we, you know, dedicate our lives to Jesus, when we, by faith, do that, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And the good news of that. By the blood of Christ's sacrifice, we are redeemed not only from the penalty of sin, he also redeems us from the power of sin. And so we are free to follow God's ways. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 8, picking up, those who live according to their The flesh have their minds set on what the flesh, that is our sinful nature, desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, desires. The mind governed by the flesh, the sinful nature, is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit of God is life and peace. Uh, There is much more, and I encourage you to read Romans 8 if you have not read that recently. Uh, I mean, it really puts the pieces in place. It fulfills what the prophets had talked about. Remember Pharaoh's hard heart. The prophet Ezekiel will talk about how the people's hearts have become hard. And yet he looked ahead to a day, he said, when God will take your hearts of stone and he will give you a heart of flesh. A heart that is unmovable and unreasonable to one that is sensitive and responds to God in his ways. Well, three lessons that I want to look at. First, the high cost and value of our redemption. I think even the the children in the Israelite household, when they had taken that 
lamb. And if you've ever had a little lamb or seen one, you know, you just kind of, your heart goes out to them. They're so cute, right? Then you have that and you take care of it for a couple days. And then you would feel the loss of that lamb. And God wanted them to know that there's a cost to this. But little did they know that ultimately what it would cost God. And we need to remember that. The high cost and value of our redemption. Some people wonder, is God really for us? Boy, God has given up everything he could. You know, whatever you've heard about God, you look at Jesus, what he did in Jesus. That will get you about what God's true character is. And you will understand the high cost and value of our redemption, of our being freed, of our freedom. And secondly, the necessity of faith and obedience. This plague, unlike the other ones, they needed to be totally in on this, right? They needed to believe that God was really, this was really going to happen the way that God said it would. And they needed to trust that that blood of the lamb, that the angel of death would really, the destroyer would pass over them, that they would be protected by that. And that's why it says in, in Exodus 12, 24 and verse 28, obey these instructions, And it says the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And in verse 50, it will underline again, and they obeyed the command. It's underlining the necessity of obedience and faith. There's also Passover restrictions that we didn't look at in detail at the end of that chapter. There, it basically says this is open to all, but you must express and show your commitment. So for them, the sign and mark of commitment was circumcision. Okay, of their dedication to God. In the New Testament, it becomes baptism, the giving of our lives into God's hands, and, uh, and, and God raises us up to new life. That is the necessity of faith and obedience. And thirdly, the importance of remembering. I was just going to put remembering, but remembering and responding. Because in Hebrew thought, remembering is never just, oh yeah, I remember, Remembering is always remembering in order to respond because the reality, you are reliving that. And now you are responding to that. And so uh, what difference does that make? Paul will, will mention this in Romans chapter 6. He will say, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He's talked about how, you know, in, in the story of humanity, sin kept increasing, but, but grace kept increasing and not only keeping pace, it eventually overtakes human sin in the, in the generosity of Christ. And he says, so, so now that we've been saved by grace, shall we go on sinning? He's like, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How shall we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too may live a new life. And he will go on basically saying, You're un- we're under new ownership here. Don't keep following the rules and uh, you know what Pharaoh was saying, what sin and Satan are saying to you. You need to be following your heart responsive to God and his ways because you are under new ownership. Don't go back to that old way of life, the dead-end way of life. 
God has given you a new beginning, the chance for a whole new beginning. And that is a glorious thing, is it not? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. I invite the worship team to come up. Oh, creator God and great redeemer, we thank you that you made such a great sacrifice for us. You made sure that we would understand what Christ was doing and that it was not less than what happened, what you did for the Israelites in Egypt, but it was greater. It was even more comprehensive. Lord, you continue to invite us, who those who have never put their lives under the blood and protection of the blood of the Lamb to do so by faith, to trust that you are the God who has provided the way, who has provided a sacrifice, a way for a whole new beginning. And Lord, you are the one who continues to work in us. Lord, make our hearts soft and sensitive to the leading of your Spirit. Lord, may you give us opportunities as well to share the reason for the hope that we have and to let people know that God, what you are really like is the one who gave your son to be a sacrifice for us so that we might be freed, truly free, to walk in the newness of life. Amen. Amen. Thank you for leading us in worship. That's a great song to carry with us, isn't it? Just imagine the Israelites. They couldn't quite sing with full meaning all of that as they were marching out to freedom. But we as believers in Jesus sing that with deep meaning and appreciation. Just a reminder that we have some people available for, on the prayer team that would love to pray with you uh, after the service on your right-hand side, and you can take it advantage of that. Um, just a, a ministry opportunity, if anyone wants to pick up on it. I had a phone call recently from a gentleman I do not know, but he has just moved into the Redfish Healing Center on uh, Riverview Lands, the new mental health uh, facility there, and he would like to have a regular visitor. So if you, while well, he is in treatment for the next uh, six, seven months, and so if you are interested in that, you can let me know. And also, uh, I know John Van Dyke has shared about uh, refugee assistance, Svetlana and her family. The paperwork is through. Now we're just waiting for arrival. And if you would like to be available to help out in any way, I know most of the place has been furnished, but to be able to welcome them, if there's other additional needs, there's a number of people, but if you'd like to be involved in that at all, uh, please let me know that as well. Well, oh yes, choir. Make sure you meet, meet three people that are newish to you, maybe, and, uh, and greet them. And uh, if you haven't picked up a name tag yet, you can get one at the Welcome Center. So take advantage of that. Get to know one another. If you need some conversation questions, you can choose one of those. But choir, and then come back for the practice after that, okay? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be majesty, power, and authority 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages and forevermore. Amen.